94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned for Cover to Cover Stone's Throw. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. In darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is March the 11th, 2014. Ha ha, it is later than we know. <laughs> it's such a beautiful, beatific day. Ha ha, yes, I just feel obliged to, <laughs> to bring it down, bring it down, doom and gloom. Oh, I, I just can't bear to do it. I can't bear to do it. But what the hell? Uh, listening to the last show, I got, I got all carried away. I love it. Uh, if you're, um, <laughs> if you're as frivolous as I am, you know, you will, you will like to make jokes about evolution and about Genesis. Uh, there's a book called The Clan of the Cave Bear. A little friend of mine, it's about 13. She read that book and she said, it's all nonsense. She went to see the movie with Daryl Hannah. You know, that's the one in which a, a Cro-Magnon or modern human girl, uh, well, there's an earthquake and she's the only, only person left of her uh, tribe and she has to hang out with Neanderthals. <laughs> this is wonderful. Uh, let's call it premise. That um, at the end of the movie, she's going to have a baby. So we're going to have a, a hybrid. Okay. Anyway, if you ever get a chance to see the movie, The Clan of the Cave Bear, uh, I don't know whether to recommend it. The script is by John Sayles, a very uh, respected uh, progressive filmmaker. And what the hell? Um let the imagination go where it will. Uh, anyway, the last show, there was uh, some talk about Carl Zimmer's book on evolution. And uh, I buy it. <laughs> I remember I remember being thrown out of the house by my dear father. Uh, he found some diaries in which I had opined that very possibly he had some Neanderthal genes. Uh now, I was pretty clever in the 1950s, but, you know, all this stuff has been around for a long time. And I guess I didn't even know if I was serious, but uh, I can see why my father would have found it offensive. Never mind, never mind. None of that doom and gloom. Actually, 
at four o'clock this morning, I decided that what I needed to study was not so much evolution <laughs> as devolution, right? Aha. Uh -huh. It has occurred to me in recent years that progress is not, uh, what do you call that, linear. It goes round in circles. Uh, I've gone back to the Victorians, and I'm searching among those people, people in the past. I think I find that they have synthesized, my favorite word lately, synthesized the material, scientific material, certainly as well as we have. Uh, I like to talk about genius and gender. Uh, you know, we all know that the master narrative is still a, uh, well, it's, you know, it's boys' toys, actually, uh, that it's too simplistic to say that. It's too simplistic. But for those of us who are operating on the premise that free women or anyway, a free motherhood is going to change the world, that is a swing back to the feminine, to, uh, what is that, to feeling, uh, oh, it's such a beatific day. I hate, I hate to get into this stuff, but you know, when I first started trying to philosophize on feminism, uh, I oversimplified, you know. Men think, women feel like hell. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about depression today because uh, masculine depression is different than female depression, I think. I'm not sure. I don't know. So I go back to the, the great Victorians, the philosophers, uh, now, maybe that's a misnomer. Are there women philosophers? Uh, a whole bunch. As a matter of fact, uh, most women writers could be called philosophers, but uh, they are not called philosophers by the establishment. Uh, you know, the Brontes are called, uh, what is the word, spinsters. Yes, they're uh, heartbroken spinsters, actually, Charlotte died at the age of 39, and she died from pregnancy. She had married the year before, uh, and uh, she went for a long walk with her dear husband. She caught cold, and since she was already quite frail, and I think we can assume that she had tuberculosis uh, at some stage. Anyway, uh, she was early in her pregnancy, but that took the last bit of life out of her, and thus she died at the age of 39, having outlived all her brothers and sisters by at least 10 years. Uh, never mind. I'm not going to list the woes of the 19th century. What I want to talk about is the, uh, the differences between then and now. Now, I don't think that they were better than we are. I just think that maybe they had more time for reflection. You know, no television. Uh, anyway, what I want to do is grapple with the notion that Charlotte was a uh, a realist and a better realist than today's uh, writers in many ways. Uh, for some reason, in the last month or two, I decided to go and look at a book that I haven't looked at since... Uh, the 50s, and that's Charlotte Bronte's novel, Villette. <laughs> oh, and Charlotte Bronte's novel, Shirley. 
Shirley's the book in which the central character seems to be, seems to be all about Emily Bronte. That's the book, Shirley. Now, the last book we have from Charlotte Bronte is Villette, written after the death of uh, her last two sisters. Now, sister one, Maria, sister two, Elizabeth, died at ages 11 and 12. They were at that dreadful school that we read about in Jane Eyre. They died of typhus. But uh, for Charlotte, the big, the big, what do you call that? What do we call that? Uh, <laughs> it's more than a blow. Her life simply bottomed out when her brother Branwell and three months later her sister Emily and then about five, six months later the last sister Anne died. Uh, she took Anne to Scarborough and uh, let her be beside the sea at the seashore. She died there and was buried there. So she doesn't uh, walk the <laughs> walk that graveyard uh, and that church the way the others do. Uh, but I think, uh, before I tell you more about their lives, let me just, just to get the flavor, the tone, the tone... Uh, I find quite masculine. That is quite reasonable. I think Charlotte did nothing but think. Uh, this is part of her, uh, well, the first chapter. She wants to. She can tell you all about the curates, the awful men that uh, have <laughs> have emerged on the scene there in the early 19th century. And She's trying to, what's the word, lay, she's trying to lay the groundwork for a realistic look at things as they are, not as they might be. She writes, If you think from this prelude that anything like a romance is preparing for you, reader, you never were more mistaken. Do you anticipate sentiment? Poetry, reverie. Do you expect passion, stimulus, and melodrama? Calm your expectations. Reduce them to a lowly standard. Something real, cool, and solid lies before you. Something unromantic as Monday morning, when all who have work wake with the consciousness that they must rise and betake themselves thereto. Now, it is not positively affirmed that you shall not have a taste of the exciting, perhaps towards the middle and the close of the meal, but it is resolved that the first dish set upon the table shall be one that a Catholic, aye, even an Anglo-Catholic, might eat on Good Friday in Passion Week. It shall be cold lentils and vinegar without oil. It shall be unleavened bread with bitter herbs and no roast lamb. <laughs> she goes on. Now she goes on to uh, satirize or to laugh at the young men, the curates who have descended upon Yorkshire, upon her part of the world. Uh, and she, she's very, very cruel to them. Uh, well, no, she just laughs at them, and she seems to find them, oh, what, preppies, yuppies, frivolous. And uh, my favorite here is where 
their landladies, their landladies, uh, mm-hmm, don't think that they're real gentlemen. Here it is, Mrs. Gale, she's a, a landlady. Uh, she does not believe one of them to be a real gentleman or to come of gentle kin. Quote, the old Parsons is worth the whole lump of college lads. They know what belongs to good manners and is kind to both high and low. There you go. <laughs> Look around. I think of dear old Socrates. You remember uh, 2,000 years ago, not 200 years ago, Socrates complained about the, the manners and the, uh, oh, the coarseness of the young people. Their lack of finesse, refinement, <laughs> yes, refinement. Charlotte Bronte wrote, nothing refines like affection. And, of course, her portraits of all these people are very affectionate. And sooner or later, uh, she says kind things about them. She says that they're in the bloom of youth and possess all the activity of that interesting age uh, an activity which their moping old vicars would fain turn into the channel of pastoral duties, often expressing a wish to see it expended in a diligent superintendence of the schools and in frequent visits to the sick. But these youthful Levites feel this is dull work. They prefer lavishing their energies on a course of proceeding which... Though to other eyes it appear more heavy with ennui, more cursed with monotony than the toil of a weaver at his loom, it seems to yield them an unfailing supply of enjoyment and occupation, and she goes on to describe here. All their running backwards and forwards, I think of today's youth, you know, they're always on the phone, rattling around with their uh, uh, electronic stuff. You know, uh, here she says, yes, there's a tangle of visits and it doesn't matter about the weather. They just keep going, uh, dare snow and hail. What they want to do, she said, is go and dine, drink tea, sup with each other, uh, talk, talk, talk. What attracts them, it would be difficult to say, uh, is not friendship. Uh, whenever they meet, they quarrel. It's not religion. That thing is never named amongst them. Theology they may discuss occasionally, but piety never. And it's probably not the love of eating and drinking. They might have as good a joint and pudding, tea as potent and toast as succulent at their own lodgings. <laughs> anyway, uh, this section is funny, and I... I I would like to see, I would like to ask students to take it and just uh, transpose it to the 21st century. And you would get the same kind of thing. I think it's all in the hormones. Young people uh, have primate grandiosity. You know how that is. They want to be important, uh, at least to each other. And so they will find a way to do that. They would prefer that to doing good to each other, you know. Uh, anyway, that is a little passage from Charlotte Bronte's Shirley, the book that goes on to tell us a lot about the early 19th century 
and how its problems are exactly like ours today. But as Charlotte has written somewhere else, the problems of women, she says, sometimes don't even bear thinking about. They're so bad. Anyway, I'm jumping now to Villette. I don't know why I like this book so very, very much. Uh, I think... I think it's because it is all philosophy. The first time I tackled it, I have to admit, um, it seemed to me to be all out of whack. And maybe it is, maybe it is. Uh, she takes a character, well, she has, she has one autobiographical theme all the way through. But first we see it in a little girl of six. And then later we see it in a grown-up woman who is the narrator of the story. And because, of course, she can't uh, interpret her behavior uh, at six, uh, she has, let's see, Lucy Snow is the older voice. Anyway, as you see, it's all tangled up. Uh, takes, oh, golly, I think at least two or three readings. Uh, I wish I could sit down and edit this damn thing with... Uh, with uh, Charlotte Bronte, but uh, let's see here. Uh, most of the reviews make absolutely no sense. They all insist that this woman died for lack of love. My interpretation is that she was very much loved as a little child, and then, of course, she lost everything she loved, and that this uh, is what destroyed her, and caused her incredible depression, although she never gave way to it. The last thing Charlotte Bronte did in real life, in her autobiography, well, anyway, in Elizabeth Gaskell's record of her life, she set up, uh, let's call it a, um, a shelter, let's call it a sanctuary for fallen women. So many young women where she lived uh, had... Uh, children without benefit of clergy, and it was her her uh, duty as the curate's wife to help them, and this is what she did. Uh, she was a rescuer. Anyway, Villette is, I think, the funniest book in terms of being misunderstood. Uh, what's really wrong with it is that she hasn't worked it out, and that she's, what is it, it's all too raw, but... Let me read you something about the critics. Uh, this is a book, as I say, about pain, about depression, and uh, it's not understood. Shortly after the publication of Villette in 1853, now, everyone had died in, uh, let's see, 1848. She had almost five years there. But still, all she could think about was the loss of all her siblings. Uh, the critic Matthew Arnold, the great Matthew Arnold, wrote, quote, Miss Bronte has written a hideous, undelightful, convulsed, constricted novel, one of the most utterly disagreeable books I have ever read. Her mind contains nothing but hunger Rebellion and Rage. Yeah, Virginia Woolf used to say that Charlotte let her 
her passion spill out into the page and interrupt the narrative. Emily never did that. <laughs> anyway, uh, now, this judgment seems extraordinary because Matthew Arnold, as we all know today, is remembered for the uh, poem Dover Beach. The concluding stanza of Dover Beach is given in the introduction to this copy of Villette as a perfect epigraph for the novel Villette. Uh, the introduction says, it said, it would seem almost too apt. Here we go. Uh, you remember Matthew Arnold's great poem. He writes, Ah, love, let us be true to one another for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here, as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. All the same then and now. And, of course, that's what Charlotte Bronte was writing about. <laughs> but... I guess you know how that goes. In the master narrative, if a guy is depressed, uh, that's supposed to be profound, and uh, it gets the uh, critics' award. Whereas when Charlotte starts wringing her hands, well, you know, she's this unloved spinster. Uh, certainly, Villette is a darkling plane. I was trying to find last night that wonderful essay by Emily Bronte in which she describes the world, uh, let me see if I have it here, as this, what is it, this jungle, this terrible, terrible place. Uh, try, try, try watching the, uh, the uh, channels on television in which all the animals are devouring each other. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to find it. Here it is. Uh, yes, Charlotte wrote that expecting compassion from their father was like expe expecting sap from firewood. And I'm still looking for the wonderful passage, and I can't find it. Uh, I compared it to Werner Herzog's uh, description of the jungle. Now, Emily says we can transcend the horrors of our existence, but uh, we must face the fact, <laughs> yes, uh, that everything, everything is not just dying, but, um, what do you call that, uh, indifferent, indifferent to death. Uh, nature, Emily points out, is not benign, not friendly. Uh, you know all that stuff. Uh, if you read about Emily Bronte's uh, raison d'etre, you know that it was the wild life on the moors that she loved. Uh, I think I remember reading in a biography that uh, the wildness, the, uh, the fury of nature is what made Emily love it, whereas Charlotte wanted to pity nature. She wanted to pity the suffering and the pain, uh, the pain 
of the animals dying. Let's see, I want to read you. Oh, gosh. I have marked 19 passages. Oh, dear. I've got to get organized. My favorite, I think, would be Charlotte's, let's not call it despair. She offers, at the end of Village, she offers two endings. You can take your pick. I always like this, you know. I'm a spoiler. I always like to tell the end so that people can get past that and look at the style. But makes people very angry. Anyway, the end of this is more or less something along the lines of I shall but love thee better after death. There's a whole bunch of stuff in here about the letters Charlotte wrote to the professor that she loved when she was teaching over in Belgium. Uh, yes, in this book, it seems that he will come back and return to her and marry her. But then, of course, comes the great storms of life. And I believe we're supposed to assume that he has died, although this is never stated in so many words. That way, Charlotte seems to be saying, you can take your pick. Ah, <laughs> yes. At the end, yes, we can all live long and prosper, she says, or not. Ah. Uh, let me read you this great passage. Uh, I thought I loved him when he went away. I love him now in another degree. He's now more my own. The sun passes the equinox. The days shorten. The leaves fall, but he is coming. Frosts appear at night. November has sent his fogs in advance. The wind takes its autumn moan, but he is coming. The skies hang full and dark. A rack sails from the west. The clouds cast themselves into strange forms. Arches and broad radiations. There rise resplendent mornings, glorious, royal, purple, as a monarch in his state. The heavens are all one flame, so wild are thee. They rival battle at its thickest, so bloody. They shame victory in her pride. I know some sighs. I know signs now of the sky. I have noted them ever since childhood. Oh, God, watch that sail. Guard it, the wind shifts to the west. Peace, peace. Banshee keening at every window. It will rise, it will swell. It shrieks out long. Wander as I may through this house this night. I cannot lull the blast. Advancing hours make it strong by midnight. All sleepless watchers hear and fear the wild southwest storm. That storm roared frenzied for seven days. It will not cease till the Atlantic is strewn with wrecks. Ah, it will not lull till the deeps have gorged their full sustenance, not till the destroying angel of tempest had achieved his perfect work. Would he fold the wings whose waft was thunder, the tremor of whose plumes was storm? Oh, peace, be still, a thousand weepers praying in agony on waiting shores, listening for that voice. But it was not uttered. 
not uttered till when the hush came. Some could not feel it till when the sun returned. His light was night to come. Here, pause, pause at once. Enough said. Trouble no quiet, kind heart. Leave sunny imaginations hope. Let it be theirs to conceive the delight of joy, born again fresh out of great terror, the rapture of rescue from peril, the wondrous reprieve from dread, the fruition of return. Let them picture union and a happy, succeeding life. And that's Charlotte Bronte's wish that we all can live in our imaginations, no matter what hits us. Uh, I think maybe next week I'll have time for more on women philosophers. <laughs> There are a lot of them. This has been Jennifer Stone uh, with Stone's Throw. I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Bay Area Dance Organization Luna Dance Institute celebrates its 22nd year with a night of live reeled music, performances, and much more. Luna Dance Institute warmly invites you to an evening of lunacy featuring live Latin jazz by Ray Oviedo and Miss Jura Fina. The benefit takes place Saturday, March 22nd at 7.30 p.m. at the Cliff Bar Theater, 1465th Street, Emeryville. Tickets.